Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, the community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. If I've never met you before, my name's Scott. I'm uh, the pastor here. And uh, how's everybody doing from one less hour of sleep? Man, it's the worst. Uh, especially when it's like four inches of slush. But we are here, and God is good all the time. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, even when the season of the year in Wisconsin doesn't know if it's winter or spring or whatever it is. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for inviting us this morning. Oh, Lord, you love us more deeply than we understand. We cannot process how much you love us. Lord, we're more forgiven than we know. And you are more good and beautiful than we can imagine. Expand, expand us this morning, Lord. Manifest yourself among us. Open up our hearts. Give us more room to process you and how much you love us and forgive us. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I want us to think this morning about this idea that our lives, our whole lives are a constant battle between yes and no. This happens in small ways, in big ways, personally, culturally. Um, when the alarm clock goes off and you set it in order to get up and go do something that you think is good for you, for a run, read, quiet time, go to church, whatever it is, it goes off and you're super tired and you, you're, you're in that balance of yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Am I going to do it or am I going to hit snooze? You finish a show on Netflix, and what happens? The next one queues up, right? And you have like 10 seconds. And if at least you're like me and Marissa, we're always like, ah! like audibly, we're like looking at the clock and then looking at it, and it's losing time. And if you, if you don't decide before it gets there, you're toast. You're going to watch it. Yes, no, yes, no. Uh, there's donuts in your office break room. And you've already had one or two. And you're walking to go talk to another employee, but you know they're there. And you're walking by it, and you're looking at it. And you maybe think, I shouldn't have another one, but in the split second, you're thinking, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. You're flipping through something on your phone or on your computer, and you see a link that you know you shouldn't click, but nobody's there. You're all by yourself, so you think, yes, no, yes, no. You're with a roommate or a friend or a coworker or a spouse, and something really annoys you and gets under your skin. And words that you know are hurtful start rising in you. And you know you can feel them coming up your throat. And you know you should stop it. Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Those are blink of an eye decisions. Every single day is full of those. But also this, is a, this happens on big levels as well. How do you spend your time? What do you say yes or no to? What major are you going to major in? What's your career? How are you going to... What are you going to pursue? Who, who do you date? Who do you marry? Yes. No. We even experience this personally. Uh, inside of us, all of us are a whirlwind. We are, each of us, a storm of longings and desires and ambitions that conflict. We also have duties and responsibilities that are inside of us, and it's up to us to decide which of those we say yes to and which of those we say no to on an hourly and daily and seasonal basis. You guys feel me out on this? 
yes, no, yes, no. And something I don't think we think about often enough is how powerful your yes and your no is. Um, One of my favorite Proverbs in the Bible says this, a man or woman without self-control, or you could say without a no, is like a city whose walls have been broken down. I love that image because it's saying all of us are like a city that we let things into and keep things out of. So that means your no is extremely powerful because it's like a fortress wall. It's like a barricade that you put up against your person to keep things from you, to protect yourself. It also means your yes, the things that you say yes to are extremely powerful because it's like a gate. You're inviting something when you say yes to it into your body and your soul and your mind. And all those little moments add up. They shape us. They affect those around us. They shape our culture collectively. What are you consistently saying yes to? What are you consistently saying no to? None of us do this perfectly. Um, Every single one of us struggles in this battle. Sometimes we win. Sometimes we eat the donut, right? Interestingly enough, the, the Bible teaches that we are all broken and that our world is broken because of a misdirected or misguided yes and no. So it's interesting. Our story begins in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And God places them in paradise and literally says, this entire world is the greatest, most beautiful thing in the world. It's all one massive yes. Enjoy it. Take, eat, delight yourselves in it. But he says there's this one tree that's a no. It's like me with my one-and-a-half-year-old. I say, that's a leave it. Show me. And he goes, all right. God says, that's a leave it. And the fall happens when Adam and Eve, through deception, say yes to that one thing. And in so doing, open up the gates and let in lies and deception and sin into humanity. Think of it like a Trojan horse slipping through the gates and then spreading. And sure, you could say, well, that's ridiculous. It doesn't apply to me. That is some story way long ago in Genesis 1. But don't we struggle with the same things? Isn't our world broken for the same reasons? Aren't we broken for the same reasons? It may not be in the Garden of Eden, but every single one of us knows what it's like to be in that spot, or at least I do. Have something knock on on the gate of your personal city walls, and you know you should keep it out, but you unlock it and you let it in. And in the wake of that brokenness follows. Our yes to sin breaks us. It breaks our families. It breaks down the relationship between male and female. It breaks down our campuses. So much in our world is broken because of a broken yes and no and our inability to be able to handle and think about that and process that. So what do we need? Individually, as a culture, as a church, what do we need? Number one, I think we need grace. Amen? We need massive gobs of ocean flooding pouring over us grace uh, this morning. I need grace in my battle and yes and no. So that's one thing we need. I think the second thing we need is a model. How do we understand how to process this everyday battle? On big levels, on small levels, who do we look to for that? The third thing, I think we need practice. We need ways for us and for our children that we can work 
at knowing how to process our, the power of our yes and no, which is a beautiful thing that God has given you. So I think we need grace, we need a model, and we need practice. Flip with me in your bulletin to your gospel reading. You can probably tell where I'm going with this. And who gives us the grace, and who's the model? <laughs> but we'll get there. Um, what page is it on? We're going to walk through the whole thing. It's on page 9. Okay, right after Jesus is baptized in Luke 3, I love that it says this at the beginning, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. He's overflowing with the Holy Spirit, and what happens? The Spirit drives him into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and be tempted. Man, there's an interesting thing. What does the fruit of God look like in your life? Well, for Jesus, it looked like going into the desert to face Satan head on. Boom. That's wild. And there's so much that being in the wilderness for 40 days, that, that just is alluding to so many different stories in the Bible. A big one is uh, the people of Egypt, after they were saved, after they crossed through the Red Sea, we talked about this last week, which is like baptism. Jesus was baptized. They went into the wilderness for 40 years, and our Deuteronomy reading that Charlie read talks about how they were tested and refined in the wilderness. Jesus does the exact same thing. But another huge illusion that I want us to focus on this morning is that in this story, Jesus is entering into the great human battlefield of yes and no. He's going to that place where Adam and Eve failed and where all of us have been in to face it head on. Uh, has anybody seen Free Solo? It's a, a documentary that just came out about a guy named Alex Honnold who's a climber. He's the first person to ever free solo El Capitan, which is this ginormous rock face in Yosemite. Highly recommend it. Uh, basically, this guy did this thing that's insane without ropes, and he could have died, and it's terrifying. I want you to think of this like there's been this one climb without ropes that everybody ever in history has died on, has failed. You and I have, Adam and Eve did, and Jesus, as God in the flesh, is walking up to it, and you're about to watch him do it, except everybody else who's ever tried slept well. They ate tons of cliff bars. They were ready. They trained. Jesus, it's the opposite. Adam and Eve had everything, and they were denied one thing. Jesus, it's the complete opposite. He is starving after 40 days. So Jesus is about, you're about to watch him do the climb, except on no sleep, with no food, and he's like got a flu or something, okay? This is like Michael Jordan playing basketball with the flu or whatever. So if you're watching this, you're like, oh my gosh, this is, Jesus has been so great, but he's totally going to cave. Satan is tempting him when he's at his weakest. It even says he comes to him when he's hungry. So that's what you're watching. Jesus is doing this thing that there are just piles of dead bodies who have fallen and failed before. All right, let's read what happens. Verse 1. Tracking with me? And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil starts there with a low blow, right? just said he was hungry. And he's like, oh man, why don't you just eat? What's the heart of this temptation? I think the heart of this is the devil is exploiting Jesus's unmet hunger and his desires, tempting him to satisfy them on his own instead of trusting God for provision. That was a mouthful, so I'll say that again. You don't need to write it down, but this is what I think is the heart of, 
of what he's doing. The devil is exploiting Jesus' hunger. He's exploiting his unmet desires, tempting him to satisfy them on his own because he doubts that God will provide for him. Adam, Adam and Eve had everything except one tree, and the deception of the serpent is, did God really say that was a no? He's holding out on you. He just doesn't want you to have it. You're being repressed. You're being withheld from. And they caved. They believed it. The Israelites are in the wilderness. God brought them to teach them that he could provide, right, that he could spread a table in the wilderness. And in the middle of it, God's literally raining down bread from heaven with manna. But they start worrying. They're like, oh my gosh, there's no way God's going to, you know, they start being so nervous. We talked about this last year with food stress. And they freak out. And they're like, we should have just gone back to Egypt. There's nowhere we can get bread here. God can't provide for us. And they doubted that God could provide. Jesus is in the same exact spot, and the devil tries the same temptation on him that's gotten all of us. So he basically says, come on, Jesus, treat yourself. Satisfy yourself. Take things in your own hands. God is not going to give you what you need and definitely not what you want. Do you recognize that temptation? Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about cultivating the blessed ache. How Jesus says in the Beatitudes, basically, blessed is the ache. Oh, the Satan wants to, to exploit your ache. What does Jesus say? No. That's where my sermon title comes from. Jesus says no. Jesus padlocks that city gates. He says no, and he rejects the temptation. And what does he say in verse 4? And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, which was the Old Testament passage we read this morning. And in that passage, God says that he's leading the people of Israel into the wilderness to let them hunger in order to teach them that he can provide. So he's trying to teach them, and it says this in verse 3, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that's what Jesus quotes. He says, no, I'm not going to buy into that. God will provide. And this is evidence. Okay, when that shot doesn't land, the devil takes another shot, takes another approach. Look at verse 5 with me. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I, I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. The heart of this temptation is, is, doesn't really need to be nuanced. <laughs> it's pretty there on the surface, but I think it's the offer of fast power and glory, but with a cost. One of the greatest phrases that Jesus loves to say is, he who humbles himself will be exalted. You guys ever heard Jesus say that? He who exalts himself will be humbled. This idea is all over the Bible. It's this idea that whoever grasps for power and authority, God brings low. Whoever humbles themselves, God raises up. And one of the main ways Jesus identifies himself is as this humble, obedient son. He loves serving the Father, being obedient to the Father. And even when he knew that a part of his calling was going to the cross, right, humbling himself more than anyone else, right? He had more honor and authority than anybody else, but he humbled himself more than anyone else on the way to the cross. And he did that was because it was a part of his joy. He says, no one takes my life, I lay it down. But it was also an act of obedience. 
So he chose to do this. He trusted that God would exalt him after he humbled himself. But at this point, he's not exalted yet. He's starving. And Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry, so he knows he's on this roller coaster. He's cresting, and he knows it's about to do this all the way to the cross and all the pain he's going to endure. And here's why this temptation is so sharp from the devil, and it applies to us. He's basically saying, I can give you everything now. You don't need to go through this. You don't need to suffer like this. It can be all, all yours this instant. Enough of this humility junk. God's trying to keep you down. You can just have it now if you worship me. What does Jesus say? No. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Again, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, which is in the same part of Deuteronomy that Jesus keeps going back to. Um, and he basically says, No, I'm here to serve God, my Father. That's my joy. It's my delight. You can take your false, quick authority elsewhere. I'm not falling for it. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And Jesus is saying, I choose humble obedience. Now, before we get to the third temptation, you notice how Jesus continues to quote Scripture? Uh, I love this. Man, this, is, this could be the whole sermon, but I'm just going to do it as an aside. Scripture is his food, right? Man does not live on it, bread alone, but everywhere that comes from the mouth of God. Scripture is also his defense. It's his shield, and it's his sword against temptation. For Adam and Eve and the Israelites and all of us, when we cave in this kind of temptation, it's when God's word becomes blurry or overshadowed by the devil's words or by our words or something else that loses track. But not Jesus. Scripture is front and center. And here's what's so fascinating. Satan picks up on that, and then he gets really crafty, and he's like, well, I'll just fight back with Scripture. <laughs> um, this is wild. This is fascinating. The devil knows the Bible. What? He proof texts. <laughs> the devil knows how to manipulate it in just the right way to just cause a crack in your devotion and your obedience to the Father. That's what he does. He thinks he's, he thinks he's wise. Verse 9, read it with me. Let's see what he does. So he's been, he's been shot down twice, two rounds, Jesus wins, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. He takes him to the place of all uh, Jewish worship and kind of the center of the Jewish world. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, unquote, and, quote, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. The heart of this temptation is, again, to doubt God, but more to the point, it's doubting that what God has given you for your provision and to know Him is not enough, and that you need more proof or provision on your own terms. The devil is essentially saying, hey, God said He would do all these things, but really? You guys ever thought, reading your Bible, if you're a Christian, or looking into Christianity, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, am I insane? <laughs> Is this all, like, do I think I need more proof? 
Is the Bible just nonsense? What, what are we even doing? That's what the, the devil's trying to coax him there to that cliff edge. Really? Come on, where's the evidence, Jesus? You're starving. Prove it. If God's who he says he is, he'll do something. Throw yourself down off the cliff. I think he's also kind of shaming uh, Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He's trying to call it into question. But Jesus says, no. He's so saturated with Scripture, he knows he's twisting it, and he fires back and says, no. Look at what he says in verse 12. I love, he fights back with more Scripture. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And with that, the devil has nothing else to throw at him. He lost. Jesus climbed El Capitan with no sleep, no food, and a flu, and he beats him. So the devil walks away with his devil tail between his legs. And it is this moment, this is what's so awesome about this, of private individual integrity from all that Jesus' life and ministry flows. Isn't that awesome? All of his public ministry comes from him between the devil and God when no one else was watching, being full of integrity. I love Jesus. Gosh. Amen? Amen. All right. Now I want to whiplash this back out of the first century wilderness into Madison, Wisconsin, into your own skin and your own mind and your own battle between yes and no. In the beginning, I said we need grace, we need a model, and we need practice. To begin, guess who's the one who gives us grace? Jesus. Jesus. Um, Jesus is the one who gives us grace. And this comes in the form of forgiveness and understanding. Man, you need to hear this this morning. Jesus forgives. The reason he died is all the times that you've caved in a yes and no battle, all the times that I personally have caved, Jesus loves you and forgives you for it. He died on a cross that you could be forgiven. So the first thing we need to know this morning is we are utterly forgiven and loved in Jesus Christ, no matter how many times, no matter how big or how small or continually it's happened, we have the forgiveness of Jesus. Amen? But this also comes in the form of understanding, and this is shocking. Alcoholics Anonymous, I could use a thousand examples, is such a powerful group. Um, it's an amazing, amazing organization. And one of the reasons is people go there because other people can sympathize with what they're dealing with. So people who are struggling under alcoholism can go and feel comfortable because other people are like, I know what that's like. And you're saying, you know what I feel like struggling with alcoholism. And, and everybody else there does. We gravitate towards people who can sympathize with what we struggle with, and every single one of us struggles with different things. Did you hear the reading from Hebrews this morning? Let me read it real quick. This is talking about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen? Amen? He's not some God who's just like sitting in the clouds and has no idea what it's like to be you. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus knows how hard it is. He knows what it's like. So when you go to Jesus in those battles, trying to say no to things that want to destroy and corrupt your life, Jesus knows. 
Isn't that awesome? Man, Jesus is good. Not only is it from Jesus that we receive grace, he's also our model. So Jesus didn't just come to save us and forgive us and sympathize with us. He also came to live the human life to its most beautiful and dignified potential so that we could follow him, so that we wouldn't have to be slaves to not knowing where to direct our yes and our no. Our world is starving for a leader like Jesus. Starving. Every week there's a new headline about somebody who's caved, a leader who's caved, and it's tragic. And you know what? We're not better than them. The headlines just don't come to us. But that's why I think Jesus here is so beautiful and so lovely in our cultural moment. He doesn't grasp for power. He humbles himself. He doesn't indulge. He's full of self-denial. He doesn't exploit others. He can't be bought. Isn't that awesome? Jesus can't be tricked. Jesus isn't wooed or bribed or anything. He has utter integrity, even in his private life when nobody's looking. Everybody can have a good public-facing life, right? Jesus' inner interior life is so beautiful. Don't you love him? Aren't you drawn to him? There is no one else like Jesus. And what's amazing is not only that he does that so we can follow him, but Jesus gives us the the power in order to follow him. It's not like, I, I mean, we all struggle with this, right? But Romans says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. So God empowers us to follow him. He's our example And he gives us the mercy and the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to stand up in those times. I love this hymn uh, that one of the lines is, all that God's grace asks, it provides. Isn't that good? Everything that Jesus asks of you, he provides for you to do. So Jesus is our model for how to handle yes and no, and he empowers us to imitate him. Finally, we need practice. Uh, we 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 need ways of training. You know, you like train your muscles. How do you train your yes and no muscles? Um, And this is where I want to slip in this idea that this is our first Sunday in Lent. Uh, Lent, you could say, is a season of no, paving the way for the yes of Easter. It's a season of learning how to say no like Jesus in order to learn how to say yes like Jesus. Um, So in Lent, we fast. We say no to food or technology or whatever it is, even if they're inherently good, just like Jesus didn't think food was bad, right? And we direct that time and that energy and that heart space and head space, stomach space towards God. Uh, As a pastor in our network says, Lent is a season of saying no to the things that keep us from saying yes to God. The first time I ever went to an Anglican church like this, if you're new to to this church, we're an Anglican church, so we have a certain tradition that shapes the way we worship and do things, and a part of that is Lent. I was 18, a friend of mine who was much older than me, was like, you gotta come to this church, and I was like, oh wow, this is super weird, because I'd only ever been to really big, kind of huge mega churches. And it was tiny, and it was weird, and people wore robes, and it was wild. And he was like, you got it, you're gonna love Lent, it's the best. And I was like, what's Lent? He's like, dude, you get ashes on your forehead and you confess your sins. Everybody wears black and purple. You read really long prayers and it's super somber and you like don't eat and 
Blah, I was like, whoa, you know. That doesn't make any sense why I would be attracted to that. But then I went, and it was like an oasis in the desert. And one of the things you'll find is people who are in these types of churches, Lent becomes one of the favorite parts of their year. What? That doesn't make any sense. I've never understood it until I thought about it this week. I think the reason we love it so much is because our culture and society never offers us the chance to say no, ever. Our entire cycle, our entire calendar year is built on spending and eating. <laughs> Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's Day, Easter now is like, what are the little chick candies and stuff you get? How did that enter into the resurrection of Jesus, right? And everything keeps on getting pushed further and further forward. So it's like, you don't have to wait till Christmas. We'll just like start it even before Halloween gets here. We never have an opportunity. It was so funny. I was talking to Marissa this week. And I said, can you think of anything in our culture that asks self-denial of us or a no? And her only response was, yeah, well, we're supposed to say no to white pants between Labor Day and Memorial Day. <laughs> we were talking about it this morning and like, we can't think of anything. And things just getting put, put forward and forward and forward, like I was saying. That fascinates me. This is also something I think could be a, an article or a dissertation or something. I don't have time to develop it, but if you're, you should. All, all cultures that have a religious backbone or a spiritual backbone have seasons of fasting, whether it's Hindu or Arabic or whatever. Our culture, I think, is one of the first ones that has no concept for how to process self-denial. Where did it go? What does that say about our culture? That is why the first time that I experienced Lent, it was like somebody turning on a faucet. It was like this part of me that was so beautiful that I didn't even know I needed because nobody had ever offered me a season or a community or an opportunity to say, no, <laughs> deny yourself, clear your headspace and say yes to God. So I want you to encourage you to think about that as we journey through Lent. With fasting and with all the other things that we might practice, it's totally up to you, the things you could do. There's a lot of resources on our website that explain this more. Uh, but this is the heart of it. It's saying no to say yes to God. It's the season where all of us say no. We say no to temptation. We say no to the things that are constantly occupying ourselves so that we open up that space to say yes to God. Flip to your Deuteronomy reading really quick. This is what we're going to end on. I love this. I didn't notice this. I only noticed it when Charlie was reading it this morning. You guys all there? Look on the left side of your page. All the words are hunger, testing, trial, refine, wilderness, desert. Do you see all those words? The color palette for that is like tan, sand, gray, whatever. Look on the right side. Pomegranates. My goodness, there's copper in mines, for goodness sakes. It's like olives and everything. And notice he says, you're not going to lack anything. But what did God do? Before he brought the people into that and provided all that, he wanted to teach them. He was the one who provided. He wanted to teach them how to use their no muscles in this world where the devil is trying to constantly exploit it. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus went into glory at the feast. But what did he do before he got there? He said, no. 
What are we doing right now for 40 days? We as a group of people, and we hope more people will join us, are saying no. And who knows, if this is your first year doing this, maybe we'll get through this, we'll get to Easter, and we will have all the copper and the pomegranates that we can afford. Uh, It's going to be awesome. And then we're going to go through a year of saying yes to a lot of things, and maybe the next time we get to Lent, you'll be thinking, oh my gosh, I'm starving for this. I'm so ready for it. Jesus says no. He understands what it's like for us to do this, and he asks us to follow him, to say no like him in order to say yes to God like him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.